There are a lot of things in our life that we pursue to bring pleasure to ourselves. But as Christians, our sole priority, our responsibility is to please the Lord. So how are you doing with that, my friends? Are you pleasing the Lord? On today's podcast, that's what we're gonna be talking about. So open up your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter four, and let's get into it. Well, hey there, my friends. Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Amin is with you as always. Blessed to be with you guys back here in the studio. I know it's been a hectic summer, a lot of travel, speaking and writing and doing a lot of research on great new topics that we're excited to be giving to the church and equipping more people just like you guys. And so I can't wait to be telling you guys more about that later on. But in my travels, you guys, one thing that's been so amazing is how the word of God is changing lives. Yes, many viewers and listeners out there who faithfully dedicate themselves every week to study the scriptures with me is, I gotta tell you, a great thrill. And so when I, in recent travels, I had a conversation with, with somebody who has purchased my books and loves apologetics and defending the faith and learning and sharpening his understanding of a biblical worldview against a lot of different alternate views or alternative theories. And he came upon, he came upon the podcast and he's been just devouring it, studying the scriptures with us in chronological order. Sometimes downloading, he told me several episodes during the week. And I can't tell you what a thrill that is. It's such a blessing to pray, to study God's word, and to share that with you, my friends. And so I'm, I'm blessed to be back with you guys. Today is podcast 196, which means after this episode drops, we're three away from hitting 200. I think I started this podcast five or six years ago, and uh, it's been just an honor to do it, to be able to put out some content on the Bible in the space of the podcast world. And as always, we also have another podcast show that we do with Edify Network called Challenging Conversations based off of my book I wrote with Baker Books and Summit Ministries. And that's also available wherever you get your podcasts. And let me just say too, before we dive into 1 Thessalonians chapter four, if you find this ministry to be helpful, if you have grown in your faith, I'm encouraging many of our friends and partners out there to please consider giving to the ministry. You can go to standstrongministries.org. You can click on donate. And one of the things that we've been encouraging people as we're gonna be finishing out this year is would you really consider becoming a monthly supporter? Because I'm telling you guys, as things have, costs have gone up and I know it's affecting all of us, but our expenses and our travel and our marketing and getting the gospel out there and getting material uh, you know, into the hands of many people who are seeking or who are weak in their faith or struggling with doubt or depression, the costs are going up. And so we need more supporters to help be able to produce this type of content on the podcast level, videos on YouTube, books to be sold and put into the hands of many Christians or seekers. That's why we exist, to help Christians just like you to stand strong in your faith. And we can't do that 
without standing strong in his word. So enough with that. Let me dive now into 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, just to bring up to speed, our series last time in chapter 3 was all about not just, you know, learning about the church and these relationships, but how does that make one stand strong in their faith? And what was so amazing in that series that we just covered in chapter 3 was how Paul was so vulnerable, how he realized that the quality of his ministry was not because he was so gifted, not because he was this fantastic, amazing apostle. And I say that because there's so many pastors today, they toot their own horn. It's their vision. It's their church. They're the face of everything. And it's almost like people are there to worship them. I got to be honest. There are people out there where they say all the right things. They got the cross hanging above their head on stage. They just saying about how Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And let's turn to this. Let's open up to the Bible here and all that jazz. But it's about them. And there's idolatry and we can be susceptible. What we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 is this heart that Paul had for his people so now as we transition to chapter four, this first part is we're gonna be learning how we can please the Lord. And what we're gonna see in verses one and two is one of the things that we need to be not just emphasizing, but really focusing in on is how to expand in our love for one another. Number two in verses three through six, how we can progress in holiness, that pleases the Lord. And finally in verses seven through eight, we're gonna learn how we can obey the Holy Spirit's prompting. Now, after this, we're going to be jumping into a particular passage that is known as the rapture passage, okay? And I know there are a lot of Christians, a lot of our listeners out there um, hold to different views. There are some people who believe in the imminent return of Jesus. That means at any given time, Christ will take up, we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And after that, the tribulation period will come. And at some point that's going to be, you know, based on the signing of the treaty that the Antichrist, whoever that may be, will have in the Middle East, particularly with Israel and the surrounding regions of the Arab nations. And that will usher in, that will start based on Daniel chapter 9, 26 and 27, the seven year tribulation that is predominantly laid out in Revelation chapter 5 particularly chapter six, all the way to chapter 19, Christ will come back, the battle of Armageddon. He will then restore the earth, establish a thousand year reign. We will be there with him in our resurrected bodies. And, and then we will see Satan being released one last time. And he will be cast into the abyss. And then that you have in chapters 20, after the great white throne judgment to chapter 22, the new heavens and the new earth. Now, there are a lot of people who don't agree with that. They don't see it sequentially like that. They don't take it literally. A lot of the book of Revelation to them is symbolic. You got the amillennialists. You got the post-millennialists. You have pre-trib people who believe in a millennial, as I just laid out, which I'm of that particular view. And one of the things that I found, and I'm not going to lay heavy on this right now because that will be our discussion for, for future episodes, because our main priority today is how can we please the Lord? And this is so important in the passage because we can, we can lose sight 
and we can get very upset and angry. And I found even in the conversation with prophecy, one of the first things that I do with people is notice in context of scripture that we are to remain holy. Our lives are to please him. So if that's your ultimate goal, goal in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, it says, then, hey, brother in Christ, sister in Christ, let's love one another. Let's differ, obviously, in our particular eschatological positions of the end times and how things are going to pan out. But ultimately, the essential in all of this is that we believe in the second coming of Jesus. But I will say, which is so sad, is there are, there are a lot of Christians, and I actually say that really boils down to two camps when it comes to prophecy. Number one is you have that particular Christian who has been on one track, mainly speaking that they've only learned of a particular position because of their church denomination, what their pastor has preached on, or perhaps they found a podcast or YouTube channel or read a particular book, and it became set in stone for them, whether they believed in pre-trib, mid-trib, or post, whatever. And, and there are a lot of Christians out there who've just only had that one track, that one uh, interpretive view, okay? The other is just ignorance. People have no clue. They don't see the value or the significance or the importance of it. So studying eschatology for, gosh, I would say well over 25 plus years, uh, this is definitely my favorite subject. And what's so funny is most of my books, all of my books, and most of my talks, I should say, are not centered around prophecy. Yeah, I give talks here or there, but the vast majority of my talks and my content that I write on for publishers is not prophecy. So hopefully one day, what I'd like to do is do a special series on our other podcast called Challenging Conversations, which wherever you get your podcast, you guys can check that out if you haven't heard it yet. It's on the Edify Network. We want to do a series on that and then also my YouTube channel. And then hopefully by that point, we can either start developing an online course uh, of, of worldview eschatological training, and then maybe it turns into a book with a publisher. So be praying for that, um, my friends. I'd appreciate just how you guys are so supportive. So let's dive in now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, knowing that this is going to be leading into the discussion of the end times about Christ coming, this sudden appearance of Jesus taking up the church. And we'll explain that in the next few episodes. But for our time now, let's let's see in verse one here in First Thessalonians chapter four, where Paul says, finally then brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that you, that as you recede from us, how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing that you do you do so more and more for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus for this is the will of God your sanctification that you abstain from sexual morality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So let's break this down. As I mentioned in, there, in the opening, there are three sections we're going to be looking at in responding to um, the question, let's say, personally. How, how can I please the Lord in my life? 
And so we want to look at three particular aspects. One, we want to look at love in verses one and two. We want to look at holiness in verses three and six. And we want to look at obedience in verses seven through eight. So let's take the first part, expounding in love in verses one and two. Notice when Paul says, finally then, in the Greek is lopas. It means furthermore, which is a sharp transition, okay? So this is a very sharp transition from what we just had learned in chapters one, two, and three. And again, his audience is the Thessalonians. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. He refers uh, to them here. So these are believers, right? When he's asked, when he's saying, we ask and urge in the Lord Jesus. All right, so the term walk, okay, that he's, that he's referencing here, that you ought to walk and please God. That is a go-to phrase, by the way, of Paul in describing the Christian life. You know how many times he uses it? 32 times, okay? So if you want to give insight into how Paul described the Christian life, he referred to it as a walk. That's why we today in the, the Christianese language, if you will, if you've been around the church long enough, you will hear people talk about their walk with the Lord, you know, uh, or somebody asks a question, how's your walk with God? Well, this is where they're getting it from. Now, I know it could kind of sound a little cliche and stupid today, but this is biblical, okay? And so the metaphor here to walk, it's actually Hebrew expression. It's known as the halakha, and it is often used in association with a Torah observance. So by the way, before I go into the New King James Study Bible and give a quote there, this is one reason why when we study scripture and in our culture today, when somebody, they downplay something or they think, oh, you know, well, your walk with God looks like so generic. If you actually understand the deep meaning behind it biblically and theologically, it's rich. It's awesome. And that's what I want to say, you know, here is when you look at this, then apply it. So for example, yes, I still ask people, hey, how's your walk with the Lord? Because Knowing here, it's this, it's a deep observance. It's the whole life of this person. So the New King James Version Study Bible says, Paul commonly uses the word walk as a description of the Christian life. Romans 6, 4, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Galatians 5, 16, Colossians 1, 10, Colossians 2, 6, Colossians 4, 5. So the Christian life, the commentary says here, not only begins with faith, but it continues as a daily walk of faith. Just as pe people are dependent on their limbs to support them in every step, so Christians walk in dependence on God. As walking has a direction, so does the Christian life. Christians are not to walk like unsaved Gentiles, Ephesians 4.17. Instead, they are to walk worthy of their calling from God, Ephesians 4.1. John exhorts Christians to walk in the light, that is, in the revealed will of God, 1 John 1.7, end quote. So, when he's urging them in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk. And notice, yeah, live for Christ. But he says, and to please God. So when you and I are talking about our walk with Christ, our main focus in this is how are we pleasing the Lord? You see, it says another phrase commonly used here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4 is, but just as we have approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So when we're talking about our walk with God, 
we're focusing in on how we please him. And as we talk about how we please the Lord, we're not talking about how we please man. We're not talking about how we please ourselves. When I alluded to 2 Corinthians 5, 9, the verse says, so whether we are at home or we are away, we make it our aim to please him. Now, what's so cool though, as Paul was encouraging to expound in their love for Christ, he says, this is what you guys are actually doing. And you are doing it more and more. You remember earlier mentioned, Paul mentioned receiving a good report. Remember when Timothy came? In chapter three, verses six and seven, he says, now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly as long um, and that you long to see us. So the Thessalonians are young in their faith, but they were doing the work of the Lord. They were pleasing God. And that was such a blessing. But you know what? You and I, the great thing about it, just like in marriage and just like with our children, you love them more and more. You never get to this point where you say, okay, my love tank is full, okay? Because you love me so perfectly. Or I can't love you any more than I already do, right? We don't say that to people that we truly, genuinely, and authentically love. And so, especially when it comes to the eternal creator, God himself, you know, our love for him continues to grow. But if we please ourselves and if we seek to please others, then we're taking away our focus on what truly matters, And so, of course, the Thessalonians were being a good example of this, but Paul kept encouraging them to say, you know what? Keep loving him. Let that love continue to grow sharply. So he says here, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, Paul's instructions weren't unfair or they weren't too demanding. See, I get this a lot from progressive commentators. They see these type of things as um, insults, basically. Like Paul thinks he's better than them and he's bossing them around. See, that's, that's that rigid, you know, old school, old fashioned type of religion. It's not the true at all. Matter of fact, Paul, he uses military terms to depict the sense of urgency. Why? Because he's showing the importance of following instructions. All of us know this, whether you're on the job, especially if you have a, a, a job that you know, lives are at stake and one, one false move, one bad move, one mistake and it can cost your life or the life of people around you. So you have instructions, you have rules to follow, you have boundaries. There are certain standards. We have that in the law system. We have that in how we conduct ourselves around children, what you say and how you say it and being a good example and a witness. You know what I'm saying? Like what, we don't let our spouse, we, and marriage is not just do whatever you want, okay? You want your kids to follow certain instructions. And when they don't follow the instructions, there are consequences. When you put together a meal, you're following a recipe. You're following the instructions of someone who's gone before you, who knows what they're talking about. And if you listen and you do it like they say, it's going to turn out great. When you choose to say, ah, you know, who follows instructions these days? So old school. Truth is relative. I can do whatever I want. Find out what happens then. So when Paul's saying, for you know what instructions we gave you, yes, he is the adult here. He's the mature Christian here. He's the apostle. He has authority. So if the Thessalonians were going to go on and grow in their faith, what did they needed to do? They needed to obey Paul's counsel for them. So number one, If we're going to expound in our love, 
We have to follow instructions. And you know what? Sometimes, because of our flesh, we don't. So that's number one. If we're going to please the Lord in our lives, we need to follow the instructions. We need to follow his manual. Now, in terms of progressing in holiness, notice in verse three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And he says something specific here, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Man, we can spend so much time just on this verse and this verse alone. I don't need to tell you, my friends, especially if you're married and you're raising kids, you look around, you're thinking, what has happened to the sanctification of my brothers and sisters in the Lord? How much sexual morality, how much scandal are we hearing all the time that's coming out of the church world? It's despicable. I've had countless colleagues, mentors. Now, when I say countless, I don't want you to get the idea it's in the hundreds or anything like that. But there have been quite a few people in my life in the ministry who were not abstaining from sexual morality. Now, the Greek word to, uh, for sanctify here is to be set apart, okay? Or literally, literally means to be dedicated to God's holy purposes. Isn't that significant? So when you and I are talking about our sanctification, we're saying we're not just set apart for God's purposes. We are being dedicated to those purposes. So Paul is using the Greek noun hagiosmos, hagiosmos for holiness. And he uses it four times here, also in chapter three, verse three, you know, here in verses four, uh, four chapter four, verse three, and also chapter Four, verse four. And this is important because when you go back in scripture, you see that Paul, when he's talking about establishing their hearts and that they're blameless in holiness before God in his coming, he said that in chapter three, verse 13. So he's using that term holiness again. And so if we want to be established, if we want to be blameless, we need to be holy. And by the way, as a side note, what's so significant is being holy, being set apart until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So there's motivation there. And we'll talk about that, remember, in chapter four, verses 11 and following. But I want to say something specific because sometimes we get very confused about sanctification. Now, I told you, remember, it means to be set apart in its purest form, to be dedicated for God's holy purposes. But when we study theology, there are three demarcations to holiness. So we're very clear here because number one is, yes, God created Adam and he perfect. So God's original creation was perfect. Remember, he's a perfect God. He created things perfectly. And in his perfect creation, there was a gift, free will, which is a perfect gift because forced love is a oxymoron. Well, we know that Adam and Eve, unfortunately, blew it. You and I probably would have done the same given the circumstances that we're in. But the point is, is that God created us holy in the beginning. Now, Adam and Eve fell, they sinned. That doesn't mean that they were completely removed or uh, everything good that was in them was gone instantly. But when one gets saved, when one comes to know Jesus Christ as their personal savior, there's a passage in scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, that says we have been justified. And what we see there is that, again, there's nothing good in us to save ourselves in sin. 
So we need to be justified. What that means is we need to have positional holiness that doesn't come from ourselves, but it comes from what Jesus did for us on the cross. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. So from justification being positionally holy now in Christ, Christ dwells within us. The Holy Spirit dwells within us as well. There now is the process of sanctification or known as progressive holiness in Romans 6, 12 through 23. So if you're listening to this podcast and you have come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, you've gone through justification. And now you and I are in the process of sanctification, meaning that we're growing, we're maturing, we're being more disciplined, we're seeking to please God more in our lives. And notice what we're awaiting based off of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13, is that we're blameless and holy before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. So we are looking for the day when he will come for us and we will be glorified, meaning our holiness will be perfected. So you have positional holiness, progressive holiness where we are currently at, and we will one day have perfect holiness that is glorification. So justification, sanctification, glorification. So what Paul's addressing here is the second form of holiness, sanctification, being set apart, being dedicated, overcoming your sin, walk in the spirit that you don't give the go over, you know, give in to the gratifications of the flesh. And one of the things that he focuses in on is sexual immorality. Now the Greek word here is porneia, which means fornication, fornication, and it encompasses every form of sexual impurity. Now, in those days, the Greek pagan culture, right, that the Thessalonians lived around, they were bursting with sexual improprieties. And this is important, you guys, because when he was saying this in our minds today, as things become a lot more civilized in our culture to some degree, and of course, we're seeing in other areas, not so much. But I got to tell you, when you look at Roman and Greek culture in those days, Guys, there are things that were despicable. Matter of fact, chastity was considered an unreasonable restriction. And you're hearing that in some climates today. When, 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 a, when a parent or parents are telling a child who's a minor not to sleep around and, and uh, not to have the sex ed you know, classes and that they can go out there and experiment and you got the world saying, oh my gosh, you know, your, your parents are trying to tell you what you can and cannot do with your body. Do whatever you want because your identity is your sexuality. That's what they believe. But it was definitely a lot worse. And so even with the Thessalonians, you can imagine the kind of life that they came out of and even still the growing temptation they had to go back. Not that they would deny Christ, but now they have to, they have to restrain themselves. So this first exhortation that Paul gives uh, for the Thessalonians not to commit sexual morality is a big one. And so in your life, you got to look around and think, was it alcohol? Were you around a lot of drunks? Was there drugs involved? Was there sex? Uh, most of the time there's sex. Okay. And a lot of doing a lot of pastoral counseling through the years, a lot of people I talk to, you know, there's a lot of sexual sin. Now other passages that, that also deal with the will of God. And this is important because when we're talking about pleasing the Lord, it's about, obeying what he has called you to do. And that's where a lot of Christians get confused. And by the way, I got to say, in nowhere in scripture you're going to see being at the center of God's will. Doesn't ever use that language. And I did a video years ago on YouTube that you can check out on the will of God. But 
the center of God's will is very confusing. Now I know what people mean. They're talking about obedience, honoring him, doing the things that God has called you to do. But a lot of times people come to me saying, I don't know what God's will is. So here, what's important that I want to kind of share with you about is in this context, we're talking about God's moral, M-O-R-A-L, his moral will for your life. And I always tell people, young or old, if you apply God's moral will to your life, you won't have much difficulty figuring out what God's plan for your life is. Now, what that means is when you look at scripture, it doesn't say what university to go to. It doesn't tell you how many kids you're going to have, things like that, right? So when you're saying, I don't know what God's will for my life is, if I should stay here in North Carolina, or if I should move to Texas, or if I should move to uh, Ukraine, whatever the case may be, um, because we have those questions. I've had them. I'm raising four kids with my wife. And there's a lot of times where I don't know where God is leading my children to go, or in some cases, even me in the ministry or whatever the case may be. But you know what? Those are secondary because if I'm focused, if I'm focusing on God's moral will, if I'm living according to his plans, if I'm sanctifying my life through the Holy Spirit saying, I'm setting myself apart, then, then all will be well. So when people say, well, the Bible doesn't tell me who to marry in scripture, I say wrong. It actually does. And so, well, I say, of course, it doesn't say Mary Bethany, Mary Malady, whoever, but it does give us a standard of the people that you and I are to have fellowship with. And in this case, uh, to become one flesh with are people who are like-minded, who are believers. So let me just say this before we move on. If you want to know more about God's moral will for your life, then look at Romans 12 verses one and two. There we're told to be a living sacrifice. So that means don't be selfish. Don't be consumed with what you want in the world, but you want to be pursuing what God has called you to be and what to do. Ephesians 5.18 tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So our calling in life, every day we should say, Lord, fill me with your, your Holy Spirit. That's one of the prayers that I pray every morning when I get into the Word of God. 1 Peter 2, 15 through 17. We are, we are called there by Peter to live as servants of God. So if you have a hard time saying, I don't know if I'm pleasing God, I don't, I don't know what his will is for my life, guess what? The Bible says God's will for you is your sanctification. God's will for your life is to be a living sacrifice. God's will for your life is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. God's will for your life is to be servants of God. God's will for your life is to be grounded in God's word and to stand fast. And I guarantee if you're doing those things, then all the rest will follow. They will come into place, where to move, who to marry, etc. And I think sometimes we fret over that so much that we neglect the main things. And that's what this passage is about, is progressing in holiness. Because notice he says in verse four here, you need to know how to control your own body. You know, Paul uses the term metaphorically to introduce a second exhortation for the Thessalonians. And that is you need to learn how to control your own bodies and their your own body and their desires. The word body here in Greek is skeos. It's translated vessel or a household utensil. So what does that mean? Well, how you and I use utensils today. You use a knife for its purposes. You use a fork for its purposes. So the context implies destructive behavior. 
that violates people on a spiritual, physical, and on a social level. The Zondervan Illustrated Bible background commentary says, quote, the noun is secular Greek had such a euphemistic use. The strongly phallic, uh, phallic character of the, of the Kabaris and the Dionysian cults, which were popular at Thessalonica, also supports this meaning. So they're using the body and the terminology badly. And Paul's saying, know how to control those evil desires. Don't give in to them. And, and it seems here when he says, learn to uh, know how to control your body in holiness and honor. Here are these two phrases, holiness and honor. It seems to be related to following a biblical marriage that honors God and your spouse. And that's why he says in verse five, not, as the, not in the passion of the Gentiles. Remember, he was reminding the Thessalonians, this is what you guys came out of. How many of us listening can look back to how you're raised or you came out of a drunk infested or drug infested family? And you're free of it. Or you've seen just divorce and you've seen sexual morality or you've seen, you know, same-sex stuff, just, you know, trans stuff going crazy. And you you look at that and you're thinking, Lord, thank you for saving me from this bondage, but I'm praying for my loved ones that they, re, they, they would be redeemed by the blood of Christ. How many testimonies, perhaps you're even one of those testimonies where you're saying, God, thank you for freeing me from that sexual uh, domination of my life. The Greco-Roman culture was consumed by all kinds of lust, sexual pagan rituals and the like. But yet they've been freed. And now Paul's third exhortation now in verses six and following is about them not taking advantage of other people's bodies. He says, let that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner. The verb transgress indicates a crossing of a line or boundary. You see, my friends, sexual sin, you and I know it harms not just ourselves, but the party that's involved. The NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible says, quote, Paul gives three reasons why believers must live a holy life with regard to their sexual conduct. And each reason involves a different time period and person of the Trinity. Number one, the future coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to punish all those who commit such sins, verse six. Number two, the past electing action of God who calls us to live a holy life, verse seven. And number three, the present working of the Holy Spirit whom God gives to empower believers to live a holy life, end quote. Now, ultimately we're told by Paul that God is an avenger. That means that he will see all things, he sees all things and he will judge people of their sins. And Paul gives a warning that's what he says, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. He's saying, guys, listen, abstain from sexual morality. Guys, listen, control your bodies. Guys, listen, honor others. Honor others. That stems from these three unshakable truths that Jesus will judge. God has called us to purity and the Holy Spirit is a gift. So finally now, another aspect of our lives and how we can go about pleasing the Lord, we have to obey the Holy Spirit. He says here in verse seven, God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. See in verse three, he said, God's will for his people is to be set apart for his divine purposes. Now here in verse seven, Paul reiterates God's effectual calling on his people. And what is it? To be holy as he is holy. The fact that Paul changes the preposition from epi, which means for, 
to en in Greek n. The English word obviously is in in. So the fact that he changes the proposition here strongly conveys that holy living is to be the calling for the Christian life. And that is so important. There's a great commentary, Marshall, that observes that what God calls his people to be, he will do for them. And sanctification in particular is his work in the believer, end quote. Or Hebrews says, Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we are to pursue holiness, my friends. And how do we do that? We have to surrender and obey the Holy Spirit. That's an amazing truth for all of us. Why? Because we're told that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are told to walk in the Spirit so we don't uh, fulfill the lust of the flesh. When you look at 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, we are to flee from sexual immorality. That's what the Bible says. And we are to glorify God in our body because we have been bought with a price. And our guarantee that secured that salvation is the Holy Spirit. So my friends, I pray this has been a blessing to you in your pursuit to honor and please God in your life. Thank you guys for listening. Until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. 